happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 234 for Wednesday, October the 6th, 2021. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City with my, yeah, holy K-State shirt. I'm sure my my, my family cringes when I, I won't even show you all the holes in the shirt. I just realized I was wearing this for the show. But hey, fortunately, this is not a show about T-shirts and clothing. Uh, it is a show about something much more exciting, which we will get into quickly. But Dr. Jason Neifer is joining me as always, showing the flag of the great state of Montana, which he is largely ruling, at least in terms of ed tech wisdom. <laughs> How are you? Dr. Neifer. Yeah, sitting here in my, my, uh, it's not an ivory tower. It's more of a kind of wood and plaster tower, uh, in the Casa de Neifer, uh, here in Missoula, Montana. I am well. Uh, um, my name again is Jason Neifer. I'm the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, which is housed on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And in fact, fall is here and they're, it, there are, there are very few not great times to be in Montana, but fall is a particularly beautiful time to be, especially on the University of Montana campus, which, you know, does have that kind of university feel and tons of old growth trees. And it's a really beautiful time to be on campus. And, um, I have been really enjoying, um, uh, outdoor walks at lunch. Um, I am back at work, very masked up, but, uh, 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 back to work. And, um, as I've talked about a couple of times here in the past, I had a hip replacement in June and, uh, I got an Apple watch back in February, um, which is when my hip wasn't in very good shape and I wasn't able to do my, my, my walking exercise, which is very important to me as I do a lot of. So the last six or seven weeks, about every three or four days, uh, in fact, I joked with my wife that Apple contacted me today to give me an award. She's like, what award is that? I said, it's the most exercise I've gotten, um, since I got my Apple watch. So, um, it's been very exciting to get those awards. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, those, those notifications of awards from our good friends at Apple Fitness. But I don't think we're here to talk about my hip. And frankly, you don't, I don't want to talk about it for an hour. Wes, what is the ethic situation room all about, sir? Well, we are going to talk about the past weeks and maybe a little bit more technology news uh, through an educational lens. We have scoured the interwebs and found a plethora of links that we always share on a Google Doc, which we think might be the Guinness Book of World Records longest Google Doc, possibly at least for a podcast. So single one from episode one on, you can link to that by going to edtechsr.com slash links. We usually are not able to get through all the links in the show, although I think we might have had a, a an episode here recently where we where we did, but Oftentimes we'll carry some things forward and we have different topics that we have put on the document. Tonight's topics are Google things that make you go, hmm, Microsoft, social media, and of course our geek of the week that is everyone's favorite at the end. So Dr. Neifer, I heard a rumor that this thing called the tech correction may actually be coming to town. Uh, I heard someone say it's going to be to the tobacco moment the big tobacco moment of tech. So um, 
I don't know. We could risk. We're probably going to talk about that for a bit. So where where do you want to begin? We don't have to start there if you don't want. Yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, I, I that's going to be a rabbit hole tonight. Let's go ahead and get through the Google, Microsoft, uh, kind of the hard tech news in part. And you'll notice I very purposely didn't add a single Apple article this week because we've been giving them a little too much attention lately. So let's start with Microsoft. Um, and I've got a couple things actually I want to rant, rant about a little bit here, anyways. So big news story this week in Microsoft land is that Windows 11 is here and. Um, uh, it was supposed to be released on October 5th, but um, they ended up releasing it uh, 24 hours early. And from my understanding, and I, I don't have a machine that's been offered the upgrade yet. In fact, that's something I want to talk about in a couple of moments. Um, I do have a machine that is a generation back. It used to be the boss's computer that we had kind of sitting in a cabinet as a backup machine. Um, and I did install Windows 11 on it and uh, just try it out. And... Um, the complication is, is that the people that are first in line to get the automatic upgrades, the one that's offered to you through, uh, Windows updates, uh, that's a really small percentage of people, uh, that are getting that initial piece. And part of it is my understanding has to do with, with there's been a number of machines where it's been tested. So your very model of machine, uh, has been tested and it's okay. Uh, apparently there are some OEMs that are in connection with, with Microsoft, uh, that have cleared some of the hardware for upgrade. And then there are plenty of ways, um, uh, to kind of tweak the system to force the upgrade. And that's what I'm sharing a Verge article from, uh, Monday where you can upgrade Windows 11 without waiting in line. So, um, you know, I, I guess I, I would be really honestly surprised if any district was in any sort of wide scale way moving to Windows 11 right now. That seems like at minimum a fall 2022 prospect after a summertime. So I would guess that it, it, it's, it's fairly unlikely that if you're like a classroom teacher, uh, uh, or, uh, someone that's, that's not actually controlling the upgrades in your district, that you may not see this software yet. But I want to make a couple of, of notes about it. The first one is that I, 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 we've talked about this a couple of times in the past, but um, I want to give you, you, give you an example of a piece of hardware that I think is ridiculously doesn't qualify for a Windows 11 upgrade. And this is the Microsoft Surface Book with Performance Base. Um, this was my previous laptop at work, and I subsequently uh, moved to a MacBook. I just gave me four years of service and was a, a very, very good laptop. And, you know, because uh, I work at a distance learning program and I spend literally eight hours a day on a machine, very little of my work is not on a computer. We make sure that our, our employees have premium stuff, that it needs to have a lot of RAM in it. It needs to have a good, fast processor. This is a Surface Base that uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, we got for a song at the time because they were trying to woo um, uh, education customers. But it has an i7 chip and 16 gigs of RAM in it. It is not a, a bad computer by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, we this is one of our internal loaners, too, when, when a machine's out or someone wants to go remote that has only a desktop in, in, in work. And I fully intended on upgrading this to Windows 11 this week because I want to see what it looks like on Microsoft hardware, right? I think that's the best experience um, for those involved. And as it turns out, um, it was not... Uh, it, it, it was not compatible and it wasn't because of the RAM. It wasn't because of the, the security needed because the Microsoft hardware has all that stuff. The secure boot is all good to go. I mean, it's Microsoft hardware, but the CPU in this machine, which is a 2016 ish era CPU. So it's five years old. 
um, is not on the list. And uh, there are only certain CPUs that are considered to be qualified for that. And my, you know, I, I'm not technical enough to know if there's some feature set in the seventh generation i7 chips, right? That that's that's necessary or required there. I, I I I and I dug a little bit and wasn't able to find much on this. But the bottom line is is that premium hardware should be able to run a modern version of the operating system beyond five years of of um, the 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 manufacturer of, of that hardware. And so, again, I don't want to be, uh, I, I like it that Microsoft is continuing to involve. I think they've made a lot of progress in the operating system world since Windows 10. Windows 10 brought me back to Microsoft for a little while as a primary machine. Um, and in fact, I, 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 I like to, to use Windows 10. It's a good operating system. Um, my test with Windows 11, you know, uh, it, it, it was Windows 10-ish. I felt it was a little cartoony from an interface standpoint, but I would get used to it. I don't think it's a huge deal. But I do think, as we talked about when Windows 11 was first released uh, in beta, I think this is going to create a lot of e-waste. And I know an easy answer to that is, is that Windows 10 will continue to be updated for at least the foreseeable future uh, because of the number of machines that, that run it. They will continue to issue... Um, safe, or I'm sorry, um, uh, security patches and maybe some feature updates. But from that standpoint, I, th I think it's, it's a mistake on Microsoft's part. And, you know, also they may have been punished by their own success. Part of why Windows 10 was a, a great operating system was that it worked really well on older hardware. And in fact, um, I tried it on some, uh, uh, in 2015 in, in five, seven, eight year old hardware. And it worked really well with a certain uh, types of upgrades. If you maximized your RAM and then put an SSD drive in it, it was actually pretty, pretty sufficient even on older hardware. So I don't need to talk about this forever and ever and ever, but I think that's something to keep in mind. And I would imagine that that hasn't made a lot of education customers all that happy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we talk about this on the show before. We at, in education uh, need to be looking at new operating systems, not just clinging to the old and the known. This makes me think about the days of Novell and the school district I was in, Texas, that clung to that for so long. And you know, anyway, it's just the ways in which the the internet has matured, operating systems have matured. Um, you know, modern new operating systems like the Chrome the Chrome operating system, uh, even more so than I think iOS is just such an incredibly flexible, powerful and agile operating system to deal with the security environment. Um, you know, you had a great article a couple of weeks ago about why you might want a personal laptop. So it may be the teachers listening to this are more likely to be facing a windows 11 update, um, issue or, or even opportunity, you know, with their own laptop rather than a uh, school owned one. Um, we need to keep these things updated. Uh, we want to see companies, you know, innovating. Um, but I'm pretty surprised by that. That really seems like a slap in the face to Microsoft hardware owners. Uh, and if anybody out there knows, you know, uh, and there probably is, you know, some kind of good reason for yeah. the, that kind of hardware that's really not that old to not be supported. Um, you know, we said we're not going to spend a lot of time with Apple, but. You know, there's a lot of return on investment on Apple products. Um, that's not just important to schools. It's important to teachers. It's really important to anybody. Uh, and how long you can get security updates 
really should define how long you're using your device. I mean, maybe you're going to get rid of it sooner, but if you're not getting any more security updates, you know, anyway, things don't end of life um, that quickly, you know, thinking of like Windows XP and things like that. So anyway, that's a surprising footnote. Uh, We've seen a lot of good things that I'm, you know, glad to see Microsoft doing. Um, This seems like a weird decision on their part. So there must be some geeky perhaps reason for this that, you know, force their hand maybe, because it doesn't seem like you would want to punish your own hardware, you know, purchasers in this kind of way. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, the other thing that I think is also um, a reality here is that uh, if you're in a district where you have maybe four or five year old hardware and you don't want to necessarily rely on the update, uh, uh, the update promises for Windows 10. You know, we've talked about cloud ready here in the past, which turns uh, a Windows based PC into a Chromebook like experience. It's not quite a full Chromebook, that that's still an option as well. But, um, you know, we'll see. I am going to play around. I, I can force load Windows 11 onto this laptop. Uh, my understanding is that it won't get security updates. So it's just the one, one and done sort of a thing. Or maybe it won't get feature updates. I'll need to, to research that in a little bit more in part because I could have students starting tomorrow or actually starting today that have Windows 11 machines. And I want to make sure there aren't any compatibility issues with my program. And since, um, I'm one of, uh, four or five folks that helps mind our help desk, yeah, that's something I want to be prepared for. Um, chances are, uh, in the same way that there wasn't a lot of issues going from 7 to 10 uh, from a compatibility standpoint of, of things like web-based properties, I would imagine the same to be true of, of 10 to 11. So I'll probably force it onto there, but I'm guessing it's probably a pretty good experience, even though this laptop is five years old, because we invested um, in a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty solid machine uh, uh, for me five years ago. So we'll see where that goes. The other thought I have is this really reminds me of how important it is and, and realistic it is for a lot of organizations and individuals to be really functioning on the web and not to be dependent upon, you know, operating system based software, you know, that, oh, gosh, I have to have you know, this version of Excel on Windows because I do pivot tables or whatever. I mean, the web has matured in so many different ways. And certainly, you know, there are software programs. I think of, I think SolidWorks and some of the engineering programs that our son did as a mechanical engineer in his undergraduate program. Um, But man, there are a heck of a lot of programs that are web-based. And I, I think the argument could be made that it really isn't until you get into college and maybe some specialized you know, engineering and other kinds of programs that you really have to go to a particular operating system uh, in a program like yours or a BYOD situation that, in my experience, a lot of high schools, uh, certainly in the private independent school world where I've been for the past seven years, you know, are living, um, you know, it's it's bring your own device and, you know, connect up and, and get your curriculum and, you know, create your your products and share things and and those things can be done on the web you know to a greater degree today than ever before so have a modern web browser bring an operating system that hopefully has current security patches on it and let's go to work and that that really is i think a best practice for educational technology today and one of the things that you can do if you have that kind of approach is you know, when something happens with a particular operating system update or whatever, it's kind of like, eh, oh, well, you know, because we're working on the cloud, we're working in the web. And, um, 
you know, if you disagree with that, hey, let us know. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. But certainly in the realm of K-12 ed tech, uh, it's just I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find, you know, even right now, <clears throat> I have access to a MacBook Air laptop cart in my room, but all my kids have brand new Chromebooks and that's their daily carry. And I'm like, you know, when, when Minecraft has glitch or something like that, sometimes we can grab one of these computers and use it. But I ha- I don't have a compelling use case today for an, an a, 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 either really a Mac OS or a Windows OS computer in the middle school environment where I am today. Maybe you're in a different situation, but I think, you know, the web is a great place to be working and it, it allows us to be much more flexible and agile as educational technology professionals and just as educators yeah. today. Um, than, than we've ever been before and to serve students, as I said, in a program like yours or a BYOD environment, um, you know, bring what you got because our curriculum doesn't require a particular OS. I think yeah. that's a pretty good way to roll. Yep. And, and, and that keeps as, as the browsers get more and more alike. And I know that, that Firefox users might disagree with me, although I have to say that, uh, the, the times when it doesn't work in Chrome, but it works in Firefox and vice versa have decreased dramatically for me in, in the last three or four years. Used to be that was a common occurrence for me. And in fact, when I was working in Windows machines, I often had Internet Explorer up in the background just to test out things to see what it worked like across the, the web. But the b- bottom line is, is that the web is the web. It's standards based and it's going to work pretty well on, on, mo- on all these desktop operating systems. So um, I, I want to point out one other quick article. And, and in part is that I want to kind of talk about the flip side here with Microsoft. Uh, this is also from The Verge. It's their review from yesterday um, of the Surface Pro 8, which was announced last week. And uh, this is the first uh, uh, review list that I've seen. I did look at a couple of others to see uh, what the consensus is. And it appears the consensus is very positive. But the Surface Pro, I don't think this, because I haven't used a, a Surface Pro since the 3, I think. But the article talk, it talks about uh, Monica Chin, who actually seems to be the person that I have cited the most from The Verge. Uh, she's the one reviewing uh, uh, the device and talks about how it's been a, a number of years uh, since, um, or a number of models since they've updated the form factor of the, the Surface Pro. And this is a new form factor. Lots of interesting things about this that I think are, um, you know, very interesting hardware pieces. Uh, for example, it has a user replaceable SSD drive, which is super interesting to me because that's the kind of thing that actually differentiates the Surface Pro from, for example, Apple products, uh, in general. But I also think a lot of modern, flat, uh, thin, you know, 2021 style devices and new keyboard, uh, new place to put the Microsoft pen. Um, lots of interesting uh, uh, updates. But the reason why I, I'm mentioning this, first, is because I know that there's a lot of Surface users uh, in, in K-12 education. A lot of districts have gone all in on Surfaces. In fact, I know of three or four medium and large size school districts that are all Surface districts and in some cases are pulling off one-to-one uh, Surface devices. Uh, in other cases, it's just teachers that have access to to such devices. Um but the the reason why I, I think this is always interesting is because Microsoft is developing their operating system in, in a great deal in part towards its own devices. And obviously they will continue 
to license uh, Windows to Lenovo and Dell and HP and Acer and Asus and all of these uh, manufacturers, original equipment manufacturers that that will continue to run Windows machines. But if you want the best experience on Windows, and, and I also see this to be true as well, I do have a, a very soft spot in my heart for Lenovo hardware because I do like the ThinkPad series. But if I were to be a primary Windows user, I would buy the Microsoft stuff because they're, you know, uh, yes, you can get drivers for almost anything in Windows 10 and now in Windows 11. But the bottom line is, is that um, uh, this is a great way uh, to take the best advantage of the operating system. So if you're in the market for an update, and I have a couple of, of, of uh, uh, primary Microsoft uh, uh, friends in the education industry that have been carrying around a, a Pro 3 or Pro 4 Surface um, that I'm, I would imagine this is a pretty great uh, upgrade for them. I regret our Microsoft store closed, as I think maybe all of them did around the country. That they was did. my main yeah. opportunity to, you know, lay hands on on those things. So our head of school and, and uh, one of our other top administrators were Surface users for quite a few years mm-hmm. and then went Mac uh, here a little while ago. Um, had had a bunch of trouble with some video drivers and some different issues and things like that. A really, you know, phenomenal piece of hardware and something that, I've, I had uh, some folks that were really diehard Mac people that had actually like gotten excited and switched and swore by it and things like that. So glad to see Microsoft innovating. I think the trend of trying to make your own hardware and, you know, gain some of those benefits of when you create the software and the hardware, you know, that's Apple's real forte. Um, you know, we've seen Google move in that direction with some of their products and Microsoft is as well. So it'll be interesting to to watch. Yep, absolutely. All right. Okay, let's do some quick Google news here. And a couple of these I, I picked up of things that we did not pick up on last week. Um, the first one is is more or less kind of a Chrome Chromebook fanboy note. Uh, Chrome Unboxed uh, is, is is noting that in upcoming versions of Chrome OS, I think it's version 95, if I remember correctly, um, there is a great update that I think is a smart upgrade on the part of, of, of Google's part. And right now, the, the launcher, which uh, is, is a, a, a term you may not be familiar with because you probably think of it as like a start menu. You're using Windows vocabulary for that. The launcher in, in, in uh, Chrome OS is a full screen experience, right? You pull up from the bottom of the icon bar and it provides you, you know, all the icons. And um, it's been my general experience that that's so clunky that I don't even bother to turn those icons or put organize them or put them into folders at all, even though um, I am an on-again, off-again, full-time uh, Chrome OS user. And um, they're moving towards something that actually kind of looks like the, the, the uh, it's closer to the Windows Start menu than it is the traditional Chrome environment, which is kind of funny because Windows 11 is kind of going in a different direction with that now. But um, this new launcher is going to have smaller icons. It's going to come up in the lower left-hand corner when you press the little uh, round icon, which you usually brought up the full-screen launcher. And um, the uh, Chrome Unbox uh, on October 5th says that it gives it kind of uh, – an air of maturity to it. And I have to say, um, I did the other day uh, uh, put in a, um, an unstable beta version or unstable developer version to, to get just access to this. And I have to agree. I think it's a nice adaptation and it keeps putting Chrome OS a couple steps closer to becoming, uh, you know, a, a mature feeling operating system. So I know this is a little thing, but any thoughts about that, Dr. Fryer? 
hey, it looks a lot like iOS. You know, one of the things that's real interesting, yeah. uh, iOS 15, is just go ahead and keep swiping to the right of your uh, phone, and you're going to see all of these organized apps that look a lot like what you just see as a screenshot at the top of that article. Um, you know, I have... For a while, really just like to have a single screen of apps. So I learned that if yeah. I have nine pages of apps, I don't go to, it's just like kind of Google search results. People don't tend to go to, you know, pages three and on. Uh, so it's nice to just have them inside one. And so Apple's doing that kind of organization automatically. Um, and I think this is probably where best practice in UI, user interface, is surfacing in different places. And so we see that in iOS and it's coming to Chrome OS. So I'm excited. We've got Chromebooks in the hands of all of our middle school kids and teachers, and we'll be appreciating and enjoying that update when it comes. Do you know when that's going to uh, go into the stable channel? I, I think I, I would assume that we're probably four weeks away. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, and I have to say too, that uh, especially with, if you're, if you're using Chromebooks that tend to have the higher resolution screens or larger screens, this is also going to make that look a lot nicer on those environments. But I think it will also be nice on the typical school, school student level Chromebook as well. And the other thing I'll say, gosh, we're talking about updates, you know, it's so nice when, yeah, we all just got that update. I mean, we, we have, and probably most schools have um, the Chrome uh, admin panel, you know, in the Google admin panel set up to automatically do updates, but not do it all at once. So that, you know, overly taxes your network. But man, uh, just between the time we purchased our Chromebooks and then our kids started with them in August, I don't know the number, but that update that includes the built-in screencasting. Wow. Yeah, fantastic. Cool. To not have to go through all the clicks of Screencastify and everything else. I'm sure Screencastify is really bummed as are other kinds of screencasting, um, you know, companies but gosh that is fantastic uh you know and i'm it just keeps getting better you know it's this kind of thing where um anyway just fe features and ui and usability uh but that also says professional development right i don't know what the percentage is but i i don't suspect it's super high of our teachers right now that are leveraging that built-in screencasting capability um, for students on their Chromebooks. And anyway, that just points to the need of how dynamic operating systems are, the new features and the additional capabilities that they can have added. Sometimes it's just a look and feel, but other times it's more substantive. But hey, we need ongoing professional development to be able to help, you know, teachers, um, you know, stay, stay up with this and then be able to to figure out what it, what is it that we want to be doing with students and, and how, how is this going to impact my lessons? And I definitely think screencasting uh, and the way that Google has integrated that within the OS is a best practice and something that can be used probably in every class. Yeah. And I would also note too, that I used to use a third-party app for that all the time. And I don't, I mean, it took me a little while to get used to the interface. It's not necessarily as intuitive as some of the others, but once you get used to it, it's just part of my workflow. And I, I, it's, it, it Chromos is becoming just very productive. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to have your own like picture in picture video, as well as the recording of your screen, I mean, there's still reasons to use other tools for sure. But yeah, it's uh, it's excellent. And it's kind of we see this in other operating systems, too, like iOS. You know, it's the appropriation of some of these functions, which, you know, are so good and so important. The operating system developers decide, hey, we need to integrate this. And this is going to become a core part of of what we do and what we offer. OK, uh, let's see here. Um, oh, another quick one. 
9 to 5 Google reported yesterday for those of you that are uh, maybe uh, less in a, in a classroom environment and more in a, a, a desk job like mine. Google uh, Calendar now lets you create automatic meeting notes in Docs for meetings that you set, which I think is super awesome. Um, you just click a link, it creates a document in your drive and then shares that with whoever's invited and then easy place to do that. The only thing I'm hoping it does at some point is we actually have a meeting template we utilize uh, and it's part of my organization. Um, for better or for worse, there's lots of meetings in my job. Um, uh, uh, there's more each year as you know, we interact with other folks internally and ex internally and externally of our organization. If they allow us to maybe make the template the standard there, that would be great. But in the meantime, I think this is a very smart Google uh, 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 calendar feature. That's great. I hadn't seen that before. I love the idea, well, not the, the, the function, of being able to attach relevant documents to your calendar invitation. Yep. And not only do people get them in advance, you can just say during the meeting, hey, guys, this is in the calendar invitation. You know, boom, click on it, go. Um, I, I like some of the updates that Google has done with respect to comments and the way when you type somebody's name, mm -hmm. you know, and if you want to assign a to do, then it can, you know, loop them in. And so you have somebody, whether they're there at the meeting or not, sometimes you get volunteered for things when you're not at the meeting. <clears throat> but anyway, you type the name of somebody in your organization, and it just pops up and it has that notification, you know, really, really great. I've been using Google Docs for years, you know, the K-12 online conference for 10 years. That's what we absolutely lived in. And then that, you know, influenced what I do in my day job and keeping running notes uh, somewhat similar to how we do for the EdTech Situation Room. You know, we've just got this document and it keeps going. So it's not going to meet everybody's needs, but I think it's an iteration in the right direction. Uh, and it certainly, you know, is going to encourage the use of the tools for keeping organized and, and taking notes and also letting people find stuff or, or enabling people to more readily find stuff, right? That's, that's still a pretty big deal. So yay, Google, good update. And let's see here. Um, actually, I think you put in the article about um, YouTube banning COVID misinformation. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, I may have put this in a, a week ago or so, but um, this is a, a German website, which actually I'm check. I tend to do that now, right? I've got to, you know, walk the walk here. And so uh, DW.com is a German news site that's very established. I, I Googled it and put it or, you know, went to the Wikipedia page to kind of read about it. <clears throat> but the headline here is that YouTube deletes RT, which stands for um, uh, Russia Today's German YouTube channels after COVID misinformation strike. So we are going to be, I think, getting into a little more of our tech uh, correction discussion. But, you know, this idea of deplatforming, what is the line where social media companies are going to step in and say, no, you can't say that. Um, it's a pretty big deal for them to, uh, you know, spank the hand of the official Russian media channel, Russia Today, um, which is actually a very fascinating uh, media organization and the content that they have and the ways in which that, you know, is really a mouthpiece of, of the president, Vladimir Putin. One of the things to watch with this, and this is on the international side of the tech correction, uh, is that Russia is, you know, boisterously demanding that all these restrictions be removed. Um, and it is saying that, quote, this is a real media war declared by the state of Germany to the state of Russia. And that was Margarita Simoyan, the editor in chief of Russia Today. 
you don't hear somebody talking about a declared um, media war. And of course, interestingly, this is Google operating out of Germany. So it's not the, you know, the nation of Germany that's taking this action. It's the international multinational corporation, which is, you know, I guess, Alphabet, you know, that, that runs Google. Um, and so what you wonder is if this, what effect this is going to have, well, what is the disinformation, the disinformation, misinformation policy uh, of, of Google? And then how is this going to impact things internationally? I think last week we talked about this article about Turkey and the search results and a fine and the ways in which companies are having to grapple with different. And, and this is, you know, it's more true today than ever before, you know, different kinds of laws and expectations that countries have with respect to these global media companies, global internet companies, you know, that they create services that are utilized across the planet. I thought that was a pretty interesting headline. So any thoughts there? Yeah. Well, um, first of all, um, if you doubt that Russia today is, is, is somewhat propaganda based, um, I just went to their homepage and the edge of the headlines was clearly in one political direction over the other. Uh, and um, I used to watch Russia today, you know, uh, 10 minutes a week because it was a news channel available um, on the early Roku. Um, and, uh, and I like, I mean, I, I, I like the watching it kind of as not, not quite entertainment, but I, I, you know, I was a history teacher. So this kind of stuff kind of fascinates me, but um, I do think that, YouTube seems to be interested in becoming more proactive at shutting things down. Obviously, in this case, a little too late, right, uh, from the standpoint of as it specifically relates to COVID and vaccine information. But it's definitely something that um, I don't know if it's the right answer or not. And I'm sure that we're going to get down this rabbit hole in a few minutes uh, when we start talking about social media and the tech correction. But the bottom line is, is that it's probably going to be a mix of platforms cleaning themselves up um, along with government regulation. And, you know, we have yet to see what the government regulation side of this might look like. Um, and, you know, there may have been in the uh, United States, in the United States. Yeah, we know what it looks like in Europe. I have to say the Europe is the European approach uh, has been a somewhat thorn in the side of anyone who works in, in IT or, or helps with tech, because there are a lot more requirements now that have nothing to do with the United States law or state law, uh, depending on your locality, that you have to be mindful of. But maybe that's the action that's required. But yes, very interesting uh, direction this is going into. And um, uh, uh, definitely check out Russia today uh, if you are looking for. I, I would. I would actually. This is the kind of site I would share with kids. To be honest, cautious. Yeah, I mean, cautiously and with with open eyes and your media. Yeah, to analyze on for sure. Uh, I've been, and this is an aside, kind of irritated at the Facebook ads and podcasts. I listen to the New York Times, the Daily couple times a week. Usually I was listening to another times podcast called the argument today and Facebook is aggressively running ads talking about how wonderful they're doing with disinformation, talking about how the, I don't have a statistic, but it was an incredible number of fake accounts. In fact, I used a sock puppet this week. We've been talking about Wikipedia in my sixth grade uh, media literacy class. And I, but do you guys know what a sock puppet account is? And anyway, it's fun. It's of course fun to just, I, I'm a goofy guy, so sometimes I like to have a puppet on my hand. But, you know, sock puppet accounts are these fake accounts that are created that can do the bidding of their owners. And anyway, Facebook is bragging about how many of these fake accounts that they're taking down, how well, what a great job they're doing, et cetera. 
And so maybe that's a segue to our next big topic, because the, the question of whether or not big tech is doing a great job. What do you think, Dr. Neifer? Is big tech doing a fantastic job today? Just helping us have a wonderfully kind and, you know, democratically loving <laughs> society that just wants to get along with each other? Well, um, Facebook was down most of, uh, was it Monday or yesterday? I think it was two days ago. Okay. So most of Monday, Facebook was down. Um, and, uh, uh, I didn't notice it. In fact, I only noticed it because someone else told me. And it's not that I don't check Facebook that often. I probably check it more often than I should, but, um, uh, there was a, a major issue had to do with the, uh, the domain name servers. There were a couple of more detailed technical explanations if you care for that, but it took down, you know, basically the four major properties of Facebook, Facebook itself, WhatsApp, um, it's messenger, uh, and, and Instagram. And it also impacted Oculus for the, the seven people that can afford the Oculus hardware. But the, uh, the thing that I think is, is, is it, it, there's one thing I want to talk about. I couldn't find the article because it wasn't posted on NPR, but there's a great NPR story tonight about how the WhatsApp down or down was really problematic for a lot of people internationally because of how much business is conducted on WhatsApp. Um, and there is a WhatsApp, WhatsApp business app that adds some business-like features, but a lot of business is conducted on WhatsApp internationally, uh, particularly in emerging economies and those that um, where cell phone numbers aren't that consistent because maybe you're, you're buying new SIM cards every couple of weeks or you're going for the greatest deal on SIM cards, so your phone number changes often um uh uh that that piece is is certainly and grow oh, i'm glad you found the article very interesting uh a uh, story there but at the same time that was happening on monday um there was the so-called whistleblower facebook whistleblower that was testifying testifying in front of congress uh the night before 60 minutes uh, did an extended interview with, uh, Francis Hagen, who was, uh, the, the, um, the, the so-called whistleblower here in this particular case. Um, I did share a very pointed article from Gizmodo and Gizmodo tends to take things from, I wouldn't say an extremist point of view. They're certainly sensationalist in the way they, they approach things, but they've the, written not, a headline or two that could be considered clickbait. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Just one, maybe two a day. And so, um, the, um, uh, a lot of the stuff we've already, already reported on, on the, on the podcast, uh, things like Facebook's a logarithm intentionally shows users things to make them angry. We had that article a couple weeks ago from the wall street journal from their research and one of the reasons why is because people tend to be more engaged in stuff they're annoyed about rather than things that they find joy with, um, which maybe is just bad news for humanity. Um, uh, Facebook is, uh, uh, is distinctly different and worse, according to uh, uh, Ms. Haugen, um, than other social media companies. Um, and she uh, has worked with those and, and probably has some perspectives to share um, uh, other interesting things, um, uh, uh, during European elections, a lot of political parties in Europe figured out that the only way they could get their ads, um, uh, to, to, to be popular and shared on Facebook is that they were negative ads and not positive ads. And so they had to resort to more negative campaigning to get attention, um, in European elections, um, uh, uh, the, the, the much reported on research about how Instagram is making kids sad and miserable. 
um, and that they probably have some uh, 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 bad incentives at Facebook. So I guess, you know, to be clear, there was a very extensive uh, post on the part of Mr. Zuckerberg, the, the founder of Facebook, to try to explain away some of this stuff. Um, I, and, and he makes some interesting points in that, you know, since she's using a lot of Facebook's own data against it, you know, why would we have a research arm if we weren't interested in thinking about or talking about ways to make this better? That's a pretty good argument. But the bottom line, though, is that it, it does, it, from my own personal experience, Facebook brings some misery. And, um, you know, um, I, there are issues here. Um, so I guess let's start with if you have any initial reactions from either, I don't know if you got to see the 60 books, the 60 books, the 60 minutes uh, interview. I listened to it uh, 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 the other day on a walk. Very interesting and troubling, uh, both at the same time. And then, of course, the Capitol Hill testimony. So I think that Francis Haugen is the Edward Snowden of the tech correction. Ed Snowden was the NSA whistleblower who actually still living in Russia and is considered a traitor by many, but revealed the extent to which uh, United States intelligence agencies uh, were and in some cases continue to collect vast troves of information about uh, U.S. citizens and others and um, you know, it was really a watershed moment in our awareness of the burgeoning surveillance state post 9-11. Um, we have talked ad nauseum pretty much every week about the technology correction and about, you know, most recently how that documentary, The Social Dilemma, last November, um, well, it was last fall, I guess, that, that it came out, you know, was really pushing for legislative change and for the United States to have some privacy laws and to have a GDPR. But, you know, our attention spans tend to be pretty short and there's all kinds of things to pay attention to. And there's this thought that a number of people had and tech columnists wrote about, Hey, you know, how, how, how is this going to move forward? A couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week. We talked about quote, the Facebook files from the wall street journal, the leaker, the whistleblower for all of that content is, um, you know, this woman, uh, Frances Haugen, who's testified before the U.S. Congress. The statistic that I uh, heard today in an article and probably she talked about in 60 Minutes, I'll, I'll put the link uh, to the 60 Minutes interview. It's not that long, uh, and I'd recommend just, you know, watching it in its entirety. And like all 60 Minutes stuff, they've got additional, you know, footage and things like that that you can see. But it was that, you know, Facebook's own research was showing that one in three teenage girls uh, was negatively impacted by, you know, their, their feed. And, you know, prior or sorry, yeah, prior to the U.S. election, they made some changes in their algorithm to try to to help make the, the polarization maybe not so great. But then those were removed. And it's just this. I, I don't see how Facebook can actually issue any kind of counter to this that is credible. Um, it just seems like she has done such a thorough job of capturing documents and, you know, publishing their own research. And I, I personally really hope that this does lead to some substantive tech regulation. I mentioned, I think on the show, maybe three or four weeks ago, I'd listened to an interview with Ken Burns when he was so, you know, upset about Facebook. And I, I would love to have heard him talk about those reasons. And I think, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where Kim Burns is coming from, but there's a lot of reasons to be really upset. And, um, you know, this is what there's 
there's different tech companies and technologies that Jason and I like. Uh, we're fanboys for different things. Uh, I do enjoy using Facebook because of the connections that it gives me to so many yeah. different people and to different organizations. Uh, it really is a platform like no other. But at the same time, I am absolutely in favor of regulation and the way in which, and this is um, Haugen's you know, terms, the way that Facebook has continually placed profit over safety and honestly over <laughs> the health of our society, culture, and democracy, I don't think I'm going out on a limb saying that. Um, so I think there needs to be accountability and punishment. I mean, I would honestly like to see, you know, how many times have we seen Zuckerberg apologize? And we had an article on the show a couple of weeks ago about how they're trying to stop doing that and not apologizing anymore. I mean, we need to have accountability and we need to have change. Um, and I hope that we're going to have, of course, the lobbyists helping the, the, uh, you know, senators and representatives who will, who will argue for this legislation and, and have to vote for it, do some, cons have some constructive legislation, um, that addresses this, whether that's section 230 and liability protection, or whether it's just, whether it's breaking up Facebook, which is so big, right? I don't think they should have ever been able to, to buy Instagram and, you yeah, know, for $1 billion, by the way, which is like pocket change in the Facebook couch. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's just, there, there's a, there's a lot of different elements. So I am joyful that she has come forward with all of this and, and it's such articulate testimony. Sometimes with the tech correction, we hear, you know, the senators and representatives say things that are like kind of scary because we're like, gosh, they're going to vote on this legislation. And this, you know, they're just now discovering that Google works on advertising or, you know, something or Facebook, you know, something like that. So I think it's just excellent. And, um, I don't know what, who all she has worked with and is working with constituent wise as far as the legislation. But I say that's something to, for us to look for. What kinds of specific legislative proposals uh, in terms of regulating Facebook and other social media companies are we going to see? I think it's still an open question of whether or not a global Internet, uh, you know, poses an existential threat to representative government because, you know, is it possible for these platforms to not be weaponized by demagogues and extremists who are going to play on our outrage and our fear and, and, and hijack elections? I don't know. I, th I think it's an open question, but glad that Congress is going to address this. And, you know, I'm not going to be placing a lot of my hope and faith in Congress in, you know, solving these problems, but it's, it's very complex. There's a lot of, of issues here, but I think, you know, Things have been laid out in some very, in some extremely persuasive and clear ways by Frances Haugen. Um, you know, and I salute her as a whistleblower and as a courageous human being. I think that is not only doing a service to our country, but to the world because Facebook is a global power for evil and, and bad in so many different ways. And it needs to be curtailed. I would be sad if Facebook would go away, but I just, I, and I don't, and I don't think that that's going to be a reasonable proposal. They're not going to say we're, we're destroying your platform. Um, but they, but hopefully we are going to see some significant changes happen, but I, I haven't seen any actual legislative proposals 
other than people saying Section 230 needs to be reformed. And the weird thing is, everybody's saying that. Part of these ads that Facebook's running on some of these podcasts I listen to is Facebook wants Section 230, um, you know, reform, and we're standing with you for internet reform. And this is this is where things become really confusing because you're like, wait a minute, I thought. Section 230 was what protected you, and now you're saying you want to reform that. What does that mean? So have you seen any proposals that EFF is supporting or anybody is articulating in detail um, about this? Or are we still just sort of flapping our hands saying, this is horrible, we have to do something? Most of what I've seen is has been hand flapping. So, um, you know, and, and if, if we were to come up with an organization that I think could probably put together a pretty decent piece of legislation is the EFF. And I'm I'm almost certain that they probably have an agenda somewhere that that's posted that goes into such a detail. But I just want to echo one thing that you said. I think is really important, Wes, is that you know I I recognize the problems that social media has brought us in the last 15 years, and I've been worried about it uh, uh, pretty much ever since. Not the least of which is is that there's just a huge mental health component to, to to social media that really has nothing to do with anything we've really even talked about in regards to uh, uh, Ms. Haugen's uh, 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 work with Congress or the 60 Minutes interview and the claim she's making a whistleblower. But, you know, a lot of people feel very minimized by social media because they're looking at heavily curated versions of people's lives. Right. And, um, you know, and I'm sure that many of you have, have this experience too, that, um, you know, a lot of people's lives seem pretty great and, 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 and problem or error free when you look at them on Facebook or Instagram. But that of course is, you know, in, 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 in most, if not almost all cases, you know, that's the best of real of people's lives, right? That you only share your joys and sometimes you share your tragedies because, you know, you need the emotional support. But the bottom line is, is that it's a heavily curated view of life. That said, though, I give anything to go back to just pictures, cute, cute pictures of people's kids on the first day of school and pictures of their mothers and fathers on Mother's and Father's Day. In fact, those are my two favorite days of the year. It's all these great pictures of people's parents on Mother's Day and Father's Day. I love doing that, too. Um, and, uh, pictures of your pets and pictures of your weddings and your 30 year ago wedding anniversary photo, uh, which is just delightful. And, um, you know, I, and I'm, I, you know, this is true of left wing and right wing content. Uh, I obviously, you know, have strong political opinions as a lot of people do, especially as a, a, a former history and, and, and social studies teacher myself. But the bottom line is, is that I don't like that stuff from the stuff that I agree with, right? Like I don't, you know, uh, political engagement by mean is just not, it, it's just not bringing us the discourse we really need in a democracy. So uh, yeah, it's, it's time, it's time for something big to happen. And as Dr. Fryer and I were talking about before the show, we've been talking about this tech correction since 2016. So this is not a new phenomenon by any stretch of the imagination. It kind of feels like this week, this might be a turning point to where the tech correction is here. My Geek of the Week last week was this uh, video interview that Eric Schmidt, former former CEO of Google, did about how AI shapes our human future. You know, and his contention is we really are entering a new era of human history, like much like the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. And as history teachers in, in history aficionados, we know this, it's a big deal. There was a lot that came with the Age of Enlightenment and technology played a huge role in the Reformation and you know, just the, the spread of pamphlets and the technology of the day. It, it enabled uh, movements and things to happen that had, had not happened before. We're living in that 
time today, I, I think. And, and so on a very positive note, I would say that the opportunity to help shape this next era of human history, of shared history on the planet. You know, the founders of our country that drafted and wrote and, and wrote the Constitution, the, De- the Declaration of Independence, the amendments, uh, you know, these governing documents, these sacred documents that you can go to Washington, D.C. And, and, and see. And, and we swear oaths to those if we serve in the military or we serve in, in government, different roles like the founders did not anticipate the kinds of connections and the kinds of power that social media would give to individuals and to groups and the ways in which these platforms can be weaponized and manipulated and utilized to shape a society. And, and in the, in the case of what's happening now, really polarize a society. And I think we've all experienced and continue to experience that in different ways. So on a positive note, I think there's a real opportunity here. And as educators, we, I think, need to seize this opportunity. Although it's really hard today in our politicized environment to encourage students to step up and to step up ourselves and say, how are we going to connect locally and how are we going to, you know, invest in relationships and not become, you know, just sort of swept away by the outrage and fear, which is being you know, peddled by, by different folks and, you know, hopefully working together in our communities to make this a better place. And I think there's a lot of capacity for us to do that. And I think we all have important roles as educators to play. So this continues to be for me, a wonderful weekly opportunity to dive into these articles and these kinds of issues. Um, because, you know, you, you see a headline and, and you see, you know, some different news, but as you see the arc of these things over time, you know, I think we hopefully, you know, hopefully we're able to just, you know, some trends and some patterns and to make sense of what can seem, you know, disparate things. And, you know, the, the tech correction that we're headed towards is fraught with danger because there always is when you talk about broad sweeping legislation that's going to impact, you know, literally, you know, the entire planet and millions of people. But at the same time, um, you know, we have. Regu- this is, I'll, I'll share this political view. I, I think regulation can be really important. I think when we don't have, you know, regulation in some cases, uh, things get really messed up. And so I don't think that it's the solution, but I do think it's going to need to be part of a solution. I don't know if we have a solution uh, to this yeah. to this situation, but hopefully well, and we're going to bring will... our best minds together. That's the absolutely this, right. That's I mean, that, the yeah. only that we, we, we do. And, and it has to be from a variety of political views. It has to be a, from a variety of uh, ethnic backgrounds, uh, well represented by by all genders. Uh, you know, we we have to be in, incredibly inclusive here um, because we we've got to we got to reseize our humanity back. We can't have a logarithms feeding us stuff that, that divides us apart. And I know that's simplistic, but it's true. Hey, uh, before we do Geeks of the Week, I know you put that Google article at the top about Google search next phase context is king. Do you want to hit that one? Or yeah, that uh, yeah. One? The um, uh, this is an interesting article from The Verge on September 29th, and there was a, a Google event recently, and, and it's interesting. Usually I hear about this stuff. This was their search on event. Um, they're working on... Um, you know, kind of ways to evolve the search engine. And what's what's a little bit of interesting to me about this is that you didn't hear a lot about the search engine recently, in part because Google um, 
has been focusing on other products, right? Like that their impressive suite of apps and other tools tends to take uh, 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 the air out of media about Google. But um, it's working on ways that um, that you can provide more places to stick search engines that's not... Uh, you know, a plain web page, you know, the plain, simple, traditional 20, what, 22 year old, 23 year old Google uh, page. And they talk about where, you know, depending on what app you're in and what you're doing, the searches should essentially change. And there's a wonderful um, a demonstration of this. And I would assume this is on an Android phone, although they will certainly bring this technology to, to all uh, uh, mobile platforms. But Google Lens is a wonderful product that I've uh, enjoyed for a very long time um, because it allows you to um, essentially translate on the fly, uh, in addition to many other very cool features uh, to identify things uh, with its camera. But they were showing off a, a, a demo where you could bring up a search box while you're looking at an image and say, and they show a guy with a, a, a colorful pattern shirt on and they say, show me socks with a with with the same pattern as this right and it brings up socks that kind of look like that shirt and that nuance of context i think is really interesting and has a lot of profound impacts um on searching and i've always thought about i always thought that the voice assistant siri um, uh, uh google's a voice assistant um the uh, uh no longer really around Cortana uh, search piece that um, I always thought that that uh, there was an interesting possibility that if you installed apps with extensive databases, that the voice assistants, um, either the Google Assistant or Siri, might have more specialized databases to pull from. Um, but I could also see a scenario where if you are in, you know, the CNN app or the C-SPAN app or um, the Fox News app or wherever you get your news from and you're pulling up, um, you know, searching from that standpoint, that depending on what you're doing at the time could make something very interesting happen with the search. And that's apparently where Google's going. And um, I, I like that they're spending more time on search. I think it also suggests that they understand that at some point, they may have to rely more on search because other products could get sliced away or maybe even shut down uh, as part of, of, of antitrust. Um, I'm not suggesting that I believe Google to be a trust. That's just, I think, a direction that, that one of the... A monopoly. A monopoly. Yeah, a monopoly. Um, um, well, there could be a vertical trust, I guess, um, uh, uh, as well. But, you know, I think that there's something here that, uh, or, or, uh, that could be very, very interesting to look at. So. And I think in terms of U.S. antitrust law, not being a lawyer, but just reading a bunch of yeah. stuff about this, uh, it has to do with the perception of harm and whether consumers are harmed, you know, how much control they have over the marketplace and, and what, you know, what, what, what is the harm? Is there a benefit? Anyway, those things are still being sorted out, but yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of folks at not just Google, but Facebook and other companies, you know, that are wondering about, you know, how are they going to respond? How are they going to be proactive? Um, what does the future hold? I'm excited to see this. I mean, similarly to like talking about Wikipedia, there are folks that still have the same perceptions about Wikipedia as they did in year one when it was created 20 years ago. Wikipedia today is not the same as it was, you know, in year one of its life. 
And Google search, especially with machine learning and artificial intelligence and the ways in which context is being brought. You know, um, I, I heard an ad on, again, one of the podcasts I was listening to talking about how keyword searches are so inadequate for your website today. What you need are for people to be able to ask, you know, questions in plain English and be able to get help. And, and you know, their tool is offering that kind of thing. And I sort of think that maybe where where Google is headed with their search. So you can be sure that there's some really, really smart people at Google. Google who are working on this. Um, and, you know, there's potential. Think, think of the way that Google has become a verb and yeah. it has changed our lives. I, I, I'm excited to see the next level of iteration. My sense of confidence in Google as a company, you know, is quite different than it is for Facebook. Um, you know, we need to be wary of both of them and we need to, you know, there's, there's an important need for regulation. Uh, that's probably going to be equally true for, for both of them, but I thought that was an exciting headline, and I look forward also to seeing what Google comes up with. Yeah. And remember, Google's still really the search engine to beat. I mean, I sometimes use DuckDuckGo if I want to do a more privacy-based search, and I don't – but I always end up going back because it's got better search results. And there was a story – I decided not to share it officially, but the number one thing to search for on Bing is Google. So, you know, that, that tells you that, that they're still very much the market leader despite alternatives. Reminds me of that website, Friends Don't Let Friends Use Internet Explorer. So we don't need to pass that around not nearly as much today. So, well, you know, I see the time. It's been yeah. one hour and 30 seconds. So where did it all go? Good question. Well, uh, why don't you start with the Geek of the Week and we'll wrap this bad boy up. Okay. Uh, I'm going to do three, but they'll be fast. Uh, so masks. Um, in, uh, true N95 masks are really what we all need to be wearing. They're still sometimes hard to get to, uh, but thanks to a Facebook connection with, um, with, oh gosh, uh, Jim Dornberg, uh, that you can access a website that is, um, I said I was going to do this fast and now I'm clicking around to try to find it. Um, the website is, uh, well, there's bonafidemasks.com. And then there's one that's a little higher priced, but it's projectn95.org. Um, and so those are, those are, uh, anyway, masks that are going to probably be about a dollar a piece, but they're going to actually be, uh, some M95s. And as we've talked about on the show, you need to be wary of that. There's stuff on, even on Amazon, you know, that can be tricking and, you know, not actual, uh, in, uh, N95 masks. Uh, next fast one is Hope Haley on YouTube. Uh, we have an, an eighth grader at our school who has a pretty decent YouTube channel, 6.8, uh, well, 6,800, uh, subscribers on her channel. And, uh, I'm actually teaching a sibling of hers in sixth grade advisory. And we're going to probably do something about YouTube influencers, uh, for our parent university series. Um, and we may be you know, might even invite this very capable young eighth grader who is doing this YouTube channel. Um, her latest ver video is why she loves fall and the things she's doing to prepare for fall. Thinking about the ways in which our kids are watching YouTubers, both young and old, and perhaps even becoming YouTube influencers is an important thing to consider doing and a good conversation to have. And then lastly, I found, because of a podcast I listened to, a new web tool or audio tool that I'm starting to use. It's called Autumn, but it's AUDM.com. And it is a subscription-based service to listen to long-form journalism. So tonight I listened to a very long article about a dead ship off the coast of Yemen, which if I 
wasn't using the app, I don't think I would have encountered it all. And it's an example of a way that technology can can help us discover content that is fantastic and can really enrich our lives. And it can also allow us to consume it via audio that, you know, we might not otherwise consume depending upon our schedule and what we're doing. So I overshared, but hopefully at least one of those is helpful to somebody. Great. And I want to share one thing that's actually one thing that exists, but there's probably others. If you're a T-Mobile customer, which uh, both of the hosts of this podcast happen to be big T-Mobile fans, um, the um, uh, the greatest thing or one of the greatest things about T-Mobile is how much free stuff they kind of shove into uh, uh, almost all of their plans. For example, I was uh, on the app a couple of months ago and noticed that I get a free Office 365 subscription as part of my plan. And so I had been paying for that. That's uh, $99 a year that I've been paying to personally have that, which I share with with my wife, and it was free, so I set, set that up. And I get a discounted Netflix, and I got, just got a year of Apple TV from uh, the good folks of – or Apple TV Plus from uh, the good folks at T-Mobile. But right now they're offering a really great deal on Google Drive plans if you um, – want the 500 gigabyte, which I don't think is actually available. It's 100, 200, and a terabyte. The 500 gigabyte is a special deal for $5 a month, or the two terabyte for $10 a month, which is an extraordinarily good deal uh, for that extra storage. And the Google One plan, you can share with other members of your family. So uh, it, it could be a potential great savings there. Uh, I have a link in, that will be in our show notes, to the deal itself. But also check in with T-Mobile occasionally on your account to find out which features are available. And oftentimes there may be stuff that you didn't even know you could access that's part of that really sweet T-Mobile deal. Very cool. All right. Well, I'm W. Fryer on Twitter, and you can find all the links to my various channels at westfryer.com. We've got fall break coming up this weekend. I think I'm going to do a cooking video about smoked and sautéed eggplant. So, yeah, that'll be coming. Great. And I'm a tech savvy teach and I watch all of Dr. Fryer's uh, uh, <laughs> cooking videos because I think I'm going to become a barbecue guy. I don't really want to, but I, I have no choice. I, it's calling to me. Yes, that's great. Well, hopefully we can schedule soon the face to face over over brisket uh, episode of the EdTech Situation Room. I don't know if that'll be this summer or not, but hopefully it will be in our futures soon. Ah, I guess I'm the host, so yeah, I need to be talking at this point. You know, I blew the intro a couple weeks ago. I'll just, you know, fumble <laughs> fumble around here. Folks, you've been listening to the EdTech Situation Room. We are a weekly, usually, podcast that happens on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, sometime in the middle of the night, UTC. You can get all of our links at edtechsr.com. And you can download small 16 kilobit MP3 versions, about 100 megabyte video versions. Follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. You can subscribe to our channel. I don't know if you noticed, Jason, but we had our 600th subscriber this week. So thanks to everybody who is subscribing to us on Twitter. And until next time, we encourage everybody to stay savvy, stay safe, and don't hesitate to let us know what your feedback and your ideas are from the show. We would love to hear from you. And maybe... We'll even see you sometime in the not-too-distant future at a conference near you. Good night.